Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Hungry? Uh, and now I'm going to ask Christine to come up and uh, answer some questions. And if you will uh, keep your commentary uh, brief and then get to your question, that would be really appreciated. Uh, so if you'd like to go to the mic and uh, ask some questions, and Christine will provide some answers. <laughs> Okay, Mark. Okay. My name is Mark Edel. About three or four months ago at my doorstep, a woman arrived with a, ch- with a baby in hand, crying, shaking, uh, hysterically asking to use the phone. She'd just been abused, and she said, I can't believe it. I just, I, 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 I went. I left. I left him. So she wanted to use the phone. I said, well, let's phone the police. She did not want them to phone the police. Anyway, so she phoned someone. Someone wasn't, wasn't answering. So she says, can you drive me to my auntie? So I drove her there, the auntie there. So I convinced her. I kept telling her, let's go to the police. And instead, I, I drove her to Harbor House and left her there. So my two questions. One, should have I called the police? Up till now, I'm thinking maybe that would have been the right thing to do. And the second thing is, if you could tell me what would happen to her after she went into Harbor House. Would they then try and convince her to call the police? Or if you could tell me the steps that, that occur once a woman like that arrives at a harbor house. What we know about domestic violence is that it really is based on power and control. And so their power and control has been taken away. And it's very important for us to really allow the victim uh, to lead where they want to go next. So we aren't forcing decisions on them because this has been done throughout the entire relationship. So no, not phoning the police unless you felt that there was uh, something scary that was going to potentially happen to you is an okay thing to do because it has to be led by her. Encouraging her to make the call it isn't a bad thing, but finding out what her resources are and where to go is good. Taking her to YWCA Harbor House is fantastic, and if I can't answer any questions, by the way, I've got the experts sitting here because we've got a bunch of people from the YW here. Uh, just saying. I'm still the boss for another month. Um, um, with that, when they come to uh, our shelter, uh, there's a number of things that we do. Of course, we you know want them to feel comfortable right away, but we do an intake. And part of the intake is actually doing the danger assessment, which was uh, compiled by Jacqueline Campbell, who was an emergency nurse in the U.S. It's actually a tool that's used throughout the province of Alberta at all the women's emergency shelters. And it helps us to then uh, guide through uh, 19 questions, is it? around the abuse, so things that they may not think about. Uh, People spend an enormous amount of time and energy rationalizing what's happened to them to try and minimize what they've been through. What the danger assessment allows us to do is actually highlight what has been happening in their life. And there's a calendar exercise that can come with that, uh, but really helps them really to see just how intense this might be. And at that point, they may decide that maybe the police need to be involved. It's not untypical for people not to want to have the police involved. The interrogation, what you go through, will feel like you're being violated once again uh, because they have to get all the facts. You end up in the criminal justice system, which may not be as friendly as what you think. Um, You know, even though our police have been quite exceptional, 
the ones that we've dealt with. They've been really exceptional at the Lethbridge Regional Police Services. So we really, we start to look at what are the situations that led them to come into the shelter? What, what is it where they would like to go? What would they like to see happen? We have some key questions around uh, homelessness, around uh, the abuse they've gone through, and we work from there. We set up a little bit of a goal plan of what they would like to do. We orientate them to the shelter and some of the rules because we have lots of rules. Like you can't be in there intoxicated. Uh, because you share rooms. It's six bedrooms and 24 beds, so families share with other families. So ideally, women don't necessarily want to share all their life stories with everyone else, so they're making a big step in coming in. Uh, so we go through what the rules are, and we set them up and get their personal needs taken care of. And we also have groups that they have to be part of. So one group is on the cycle and dynamics of abuse so that they can understand, again, what they're going through. So when the tension building happens, when the explosion happens, what the pretend normal or honeymoon phase is and the rest of it, and they get some aha moments from that. We do a session on even those that don't have children on um, the impact of uh, being exposed to family violence what that impact is on kids. And we want them first to have respect for the little ones that are on the floor. Uh, But quite often what we get is women talking about what happened in their families of origin, what happened with their parents, what they witnessed with aunties and uncles and the rest of it. And they start to make that connection about how this pattern can continue and go on. It's not to shame them, but it is to make them think about what the needs are for the little ones. that that we have in the shelter as well. And we really work from the perspective of the children's rights have to supersede the adults' rights. So we also do an automatic reporting protocol with uh, children's services around uh, children under the age of 18 that are in our shelter. And again, it's not to have kids apprehended. I think I've seen about seven apprehensions in my 24 years at the YWCA, just so you know. That few will be apprehended. And those were all very critical situations. Uh, But what we're looking at is, is there an open file already? Is there ways that we can support Mama in working on the issues that were identified in the file? Is there a need, if there's escalating violence, uh, for Children's Services to be involved? Is there uh, other services that they may need where we can advocate for those services to be put in place? So that's what we're looking at. And again, in the province of Alberta, it's a 21-day residency that's allowed in women's emergency shelters. Uh, Places like Ontario and some other places have six months. So in 21 days, if you've decided to leave that relationship, you've got to get your act together. Figure out where you're going to sleep, how you're going to feed your kids, how you're going to get income, and that's pretty daunting. Most of us can't, haven't figured out our Christmas list yet. You know, put it in perspective. And they're under this enormous stress. So we really try and work with them to get them into those next steps. Who are going to be those advocate, advocates for them going forward? What type of natural resources they may have available to them in the community as well? We also see women, when they come to the shelter, about 50% leave within the first week. It takes about 35 leaves before they decide to make some permanent steps, take some permanent steps in their lives. Uh, so again, we're very patient. We don't, uh, we don't um, tell them that they have to leave the relationship. We really want them to take uh, control of their, of their situation and what they want to do. So we won't judge. We want to make sure our doors are open to them and that the crisis lines are open to them at any time. Did that answer your question? Okay. And, uh, you know, given the right circumstance, if you... Uh, you know, if there's a little tour that's wanted, we can arrange for that so people can actually put a face to the building and, and see what we do. So, Frank. <laughs> ah, Frank. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, name is Frank Toth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to say that uh, historically, of course, it's been a male dominated world, unfortunately. And fortunately, I was born on International Women's Day. Uh, and uh, that's a fact. And I, I've been writing letters naturally supporting women, especially the senior women 
the widowed ones especially are under tremendous financial mm -hmm. uh, chaos right now in Canada, mm -hmm. and uh, we're not doing anything about it. I'm just wondering if uh, if uh, it would be within our jurisdiction to uh, write a letter, notify the city of Lethbridge on tonight's paper's reports again that there's 200 beds uh, were required to handle the women in trouble right now. And uh, there's no beds for them in Lethbridge, today's paper even again. So it, would it be in our jurisdiction for this organization to send a letter to the city of Lethbridge to get off their backside, the spendthrift, they're building double uh, uh, skating rinks, double swimming pools on the, on the west side, and we got no money. Women have no beds to escape to. Uh, just, uh, and that's wonderful. Um, he's usually much warmer to me when he sees me in Colehurst at Miners Day, so I just have to say. Oh, yeah. uh, one more item I'd like to honor. <laughs> <laughs> His Worship, the Mayor of Colehurst, is bless, blessing us here with his <laughs> presence here today. I'd like to say welcome to him. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> um, uh, well, Mr. Toth, in, in response to that, actually, I, I, I need, I'm going to speak favorably of the city of Lethbridge. They've been a great champions for the YWCA, Lethbridge and District, and for our programming. Uh, the municipality actually funds us uh, in a number of ways, particularly around housing and homelessness. And we know when we look at our women's residents, uh, you know, about 75% have diagnosed mental health issues, 50% have accompanying addictions issues. When you go back in their background, most of them experienced childhood sexual abuse, most of them experienced domestic violence, violence relationships, and led, led to many, many of the issues that they're dealing with now, uh, on why they became chronically homeless. So actually the city has been really quite kind to us in that way. It's not within their jurisdiction to build those types of shelter beds. Uh, so unfortunately it's not there because there are levels of government that we have to deal with as well. Uh, but they have been champions in speaking with the province and talking about what the needs are here as well. Uh, so uh, that part is there. You can write whatever letters you want, though, in support of us. We'd always accept that. Yeah, yeah but even when we look at recreation services, if kids don't have things to do, if we don't have meaningful activities in our community, we actually will have more people lost more people involved in violence, in drugs, in alcohol addictions than what we have not. So it, it's a balancing act, I believe, that communities have to do around the, what's seen as leisure or soft types of activities to the hardcore types of things when it comes to women's emergency shelters. So, so I think there's benefits uh, both ways, and we'll wait to see what, what comes with that. Okay. Thank you, Christy. Douglas Mitchell. Vizcazi, mm -hmm. I really commend you for the noble work you do. And I uh, would also like to ask you some questions about, you have not touched on the Aboriginal issue, which is a big focus, as you know, for the Liberal government right now. And I'm particularly concerned about knowing what has happened to the Native Women's Transition Home, how you coordinate with them if you do. And because I, when they were on 18th Street, I had a number of rewarding visits there. And, but I've heard next to nothing of them since they moved to the north side. Okay. 
Um, uh, no, I, I, uh, when I talk about domestic violence, I talk about it, I guess, in, in a broad scale. We do know at our shelter about 65% of the women that we receive are uh, First Nations women. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that when you look at who's coming to a shelter when they're coming with nothing, most of our Aboriginal women have nothing. That's the reality. On reserve, they have no property rights. If they uh, leave their husband, if there's a divorce situation, they have no property rights yet in Canada on reserve. So those are all issues that impact it that way. And certainly with the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women inquiry that's going forward, we're hoping to see from that the systemic changes that need to happen across our country, both with police, with the uh, justice systems, with uh, social welfare. Even when we mentioned about Tina Fontaine and her murder in Winnipeg, a 13-year-old little girl was put in a hotel because there wasn't a place for her to go in foster care. That's pretty pathetic. And that was happening in Vancouver and in British Columbia as well. British Columbia just finished a major review of their child welfare system and is saying, like, we need hundreds more workers if we're really going to tackle this issue right. And yet we've seen children's services being one of the most underfunded uh, bodies within our province, within any, within any province, and kids being discarded. Uh, so, yes, uh, we see a great many Aboriginal uh, women that are being abused. Um, what was the other part of that? See, I lost my thought. I mean, that's age, you know, um, maybe. Um, I can't remember what the other part was that. Sorry about that. Oh, Blackfoot Lodge. Um, I, well, it's probably not a lot that I can uh, say about that. We know we had made referrals there in the past uh, for women to stay. Uh, my understanding in the last while is that they were sitting at uh, near zero capacity for, or with only one woman in there or one family in there. Uh, so what's happening, I don't know. I think with uh, so many agencies, and we see this in the not-for-profit sector uh, in particular, if I were just to talk about from a management thing, is that uh, sometimes, um, you know, the, the work can be hard, but along with the work, we have to have some good management structures in place as well. And uh, one of the strengths, certainly, for our organization is, has been our investment in standards and in practice and holding true to that, even when we know we have all this other work we have to do. Uh, so hopefully, uh, for that organization, that they can rebound and find what they need to have in place to be able to go forward. I believe it's still a needed resource in, in this city. Uh, but again, the investments need to come from within as well. Does that help? Okay. Thank you, Christine. Uh, Mary. Uh, Mary Shillington. Thank you, Christine. I'm really glad to have you here since I recommended you be asked. <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to get you before you left. Uh, and thank you for your many years of service. Um, I, I don't know which question to ask, but anyway, uh, having worked at Lethbridge Family Services and seen the groups there for abusers, both men and women, I'm wondering what your uh, and your staff's experience has been with those people who who went for tr treatment and if you're seeing any changes in that way because it seems to me if we're going to take responsibility and help help change some things we have to start with not only the children but also the adults who are abusive and how to change help them to find different ways of responding so what's your experience okay <laughs> i'm getting asked some really loaded questions Mary, oh. um, our experience has been, uh, for some, it works well. Uh, for others, we believe there's been a complete disregard for the victims in the cases. In fact, um, and I think it's a phenomenon that's happened with a number of um, services that, that are provided to offenders is that uh, because they have to advocate for the offender, they become very much on side with the offender. And so we have some struggles there. 
And the rights of the offender, and much like in my presentation I mentioned, supersede that of the family needs, of the victim, of the children. And so I think, you know, I think we're in a position where possibly change is looming. I'm looking at my staff right now and the rolling of the eyes and uh, I'm not too sure. But that's the hope is that we're going to see some changes coming there because it's actually been put on the table through the Domestic Violence Action Team that we have some concerns. And it's not just the YWCA having some concerns, so it's not you know, a we-they thing. It's, it's a concern that's from our community about how um, are these programs working to – could they work better, I guess is what I would like to say. I think the treatment part is fine for the offender, but there's, we can't deal in isolation with one person and not with the rest. And so what else uh, can we do here? Because there's some pieces that are grossly missing. Does that help? Not to be too <laughs> – we'll be talking, Mary, you and I. <laughs> yes. Uh, hi, Thank my name is me. Joseph Matuck. Uh, I have a question here that I'm sure would be, well, be difficult to answer. But you know what? I always look at prevention rather than the cure. And I, you know, what, what can we as a society do, and I'm talking all of society, mm -hmm. to minimize this kind of a personality that occurs during the, uh, the situation that we're talking about? Is there, can you give us some some wisdom as to how we can train our future generations and not to minimize that, or is that uh, is that just the way it is? Uh, I don't I don't think it is. It's, there's a lot of stuff we can do as a society to prevent or minimize that. Thank you. Well, you know, if I didn't believe in hope, I shouldn't be in the field. And I and I say that for anyone who enters enters our building. Um, I really do believe that there are things that we can be doing right now, and part of that is what all of you can take from this and go forward with. Every time you see a commercial, a comedian, a show that's really uh, degrading to women, have those critical discussions with your grandchildren, with your children, with your neighbors, with your friends. That is a way that we can start and take some action. We need to embed this within education, uh, within the school system and outside the school system, because parents uh, model these behaviors. So how do we make those shifts and those changes? And I know our commitment you know, to our son was to raise him well, to be a respectful young man. Um, and I think we did a really good job. Well, sometimes he's not as respectful to his father, but, you know, uh, <laughs> depends, as, you know, over loans and stuff. But uh, really, you know, we invested that way. So I think we need to encourage that uh, with parents right from the start. Uh, I think there's screening that needs to happen. We know the law of domestic violence starts during pregnancy. Uh, where is the screening that's happening uh, with that and how far is it going? Are we doing enough follow-up visits to see what's happening in the home? So I think there's a whole bunch of follow-up pieces that can be happening that we need to do, but a really a lot of it comes from what each of us do as individuals. And I know um, when my husband and I have been at you know a community uh, get-together with friends, and I remember this one fellow saying a very bad joke, and it was racist and sexist all in one, and the whole room got uncomfortable and went quiet. And I said, you know, for obvious reasons... That's not a welcomed joke. Well, you know, Christine, it's just a joke. I said, well, you know, obviously it's not welcomed. He's never said a joke like that in front of us again. And when our families get together, we have a great time. It was one comment, one time, done respectfully, and we get along great. And I honestly, I believe he would help anybody. I don't see him as a prejudiced person or a sexist person. He really is a lovely man. But again, the culture and how he was raised was very different. But it took someone actually saying something. And it's those small steps that we take that make big changes. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you, Christine. Yes. Hi there. My name is Vivian. Um, 
for the women and families that uh, unfortunately get turned away, what kind of resources do you have to either follow up with them and um, to track them and just make sure that, I don't know if they're, if they're okay, I don't know what resources you have. There's not a lot of resources that way. If you think about the sheer numbers of what we deal with, there's very little follow-up that we can do when they're calling the crisis line. Uh, what we do on the crisis line when they call and we have no bed space, we actually start to look at what resources may be available to them naturally in the community. If there is family and friends, if we can advocate with emergency social services to put them up in a hotel overnight or for a couple of nights, is there another shelter they can go to in Pincher Creek, Tabor, or Calgary that might be able to meet their needs temporarily? Knowing, of course, if they have a job, if they have kids in school, that means uprooting your entire life at that point. Uh, we will work through safety planning with them. So what does that mean? Uh, so can you talk to your neighbor to let them know if the front porch light is on to call the police for you? Simple things like that that could be done. Again, this places onus on the woman then to take care of herself rather than uh, dealing with the abuser, abuser's behavior because she can't necessarily predict when something is going to go horribly awry in the home. But those are all things that we look at for where for how we can help. We can introduce them to outreach. That outreach might be able to do follow-up with them. Again, they can call us anonymously. They may not have access to a phone. When you call back, it may not be a safe time to call back. And quite often, women have GPS trackers put on their cars. They have, yes, uh, phone calls. Uh, we had actually a senior manager at the YWCA was you know, getting her hair done. And just before her, apparently one of our clients that had stayed at Harbor House had been in there. And the hairdresser was complaining, well, her phone went off like a hundred times in the hour that she was here. You guys should take away all the phones from the women. Okay, so how does that help? She's not in control of his violent text messages. He's stalking her. She also, if she doesn't have a phone, can't dial 911. So how does it help her? Why is this her fault that she got a hundred text messages in an hour? And so we start to look at what are those other things we can do. Uh, released just last month by the Domestic Violence Action Team, Bill Kay, uh, was a stalking kit. So women who are being stalked can actually go and see him, and he has a means to actually uh, go over the car to see if there's a tracking device on the vehicle. Uh, he has a way that you can collect evidence so that can be used in court uh, later on so that criminal charges can happen and so there's ways like that that we've come together as a community to make sure that we can take some of those steps but no typically there's no way that we can uh, go back we get and I forgot the stat for how many crisis calls we had last year anybody know off the top of their heads oh I think it was more than that we get about 7,500 information calls on the crisis line and then probably 2,500 or more uh, crisis calls and so we always say, if, if you don't like change, don't work at the YWCA because it goes like this. So it's almost impossible for us to do that type of follow okay. Christine, Knut. My name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thank you very much for coming, Christine, and thank you very much for your years of service. Uh, I wonder if you would care to uh, introduce your, your replacement? Team? My replacement? Absolutely. I would love but to. But I also have a question. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, since we have the ear of the uh, provincial government uh, close by, <laughs> what, are you, what are you looking for from the provincial government? You've already seen some uh, 
some good things happen, mm -hmm. but uh, what else are you looking for? And I guess just to cover some of those good things that have happened is that there's been a major investment in domestic violence in this province. So our outreach team is actually doubling. We're going up to seven staff instead of the three that we had. And just so you know, they dealt with 3,000 women and children last year. And that's everything from food bank runs. Anytime there's a letter to the editor saying, or the roast and toast that says, we saw the SUV outside the food bank, it was probably my staff taking clients there. Uh, but they do everything from that to international work. Uh, to uh, work with the court system, to helping them find housing and how to deal with the landlord. So when the violent partner comes back, we, I remember years ago we had one woman who had seven kids. They finally found her a place to live and the abuser moved three doors down. And so how do you deal with that? How do you feel safe? So they deal with all those types of situations. So we're hoping with that team that they can also go out to the rural communities because we get a lot of rural women coming in as well. So maybe we can set up shop in some other areas and go and visit some rural communities. So that's been wonderful. Some operational funding uh, came for us as well and a permanent staff to actually work on our Project Child Recovery Program, uh, which is working with kids... Uh, well, it's not going to be zero, but uh, 6 to 12 and older. So we're really working with those kids that have been exposed to domestic violence and uh, their feelings and emotions and what they need to do. So again, looking at that next step of prevention uh, for where they're going in their life, and it's been a very successful program. Um, what we want from the government, well, you know, I think they should just fully fund everything the YWCA does, you know, so we don't have to fundraise anymore. It's all really good. I think, uh, continue, seriously, continuing down the same path that they're on, they've made uh, certainly uh, some very strong statements about supporting a second stage in the province, knowing that we don't have a structure built yet for that. Um, I think some help around those areas and making that go, going forward. I think looking at uh, the how the ministries talk to one another because they really do work or in the past have worked in silos. Uh, so what, and we have some major issues with the court system. So family court does not talk to criminal court, uh, which means then that we have um, someone who's been uh, charged with sexually assaulting his daughter. There's major domestic violence going on. And family court says, you know, he's a dad. He needs to have access to his kids. And, and this, this is a live case. This, this is what we're dealing with every day at the YWCA. This is what these women are dealing with, where they're forced into uh, custody situations where they have to uh, provide visitation and not know what, if their children are going to come back or in what shape they're going to come back. So these systems don't talk to one another. We would love to see the provincial government, and maybe through Status of Women, really working on how we are going to get all of these places to talk to one another. That would be, I think that's a, maybe a little bit of a dream right now because this is huge. Uh, but that, if that could happen, oh, man, we'd be so happy, wouldn't we, Bernice? Yes, we'd be so happy. Yeah. So those would be some of the things. Okay. Thank you, Christine. Uh, Terry. Terry Shellington. Thank you very much for your sledgehammer-like uh, presentation. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wonder, uh, the matter of uh, pregnant women being vulnerable uh, mm -hmm. keeps surfacing in this Discussion, and I wonder if you'd shed some light on why pregnant women uh, tend to be particularly uh, vulnerable to. Okay, I, I don't know if I know all of the answers around that, and I'll still introduce you, Jen. Sorry, um, all the answers around that. But certainly, uh, during the time leading up to pregnancy, uh, we see a lot of romance. Whatever else is going on when pregnancy comes, uh, sometimes there's a lot of jealousy that happens. Uh, that now your attentions are going to be divided, not solely given to me. And so uh, we see that as a common thread. We also see that this is a time that women become very vulnerable because you are dependent, right? 
you are going to bear the responsibility for that child when it is born. And so you need someone there who's going to have an income. You need someone there who's going to support you through this. It's very scary. Your body's changing. You don't feel attractive, all these things. And right away when those vulnerabilities come in, they're like vultures and they're right there. So those are, you know, some of the primary reasons. I don't know if there's other reasons. I'm looking at Tracy now. If, if she has anything that she'd like to add. But those are some of the reasons that we see uh, happening or that's been in the literature uh, that has spoken to that. Um, and so quite often we see people that have been kicked in the stomach, things like this, uh, because they want to uh, force an abortion, uh, basically, because, again, the divided attentions, they don't want that to happen. Uh, we see children who are from a different relationship being treated very differently, being abused uh, in the family as well, because this is the discarded child that now the new partner doesn't want to have there. So those are all, um, I guess, come into play. Um, yeah. That's it. I will. I'm sorry, Knut. I didn't do it. Uh, Jennifer Lepko is here, and she has been a manager at the YWCA for a number of years, uh, is uh, very well versed in domestic and sexual violence and in human trafficking. She's actually, uh, before being named as the interim CEO, is the lead project coordinator for our Amethyst Project, which is starting right now, uh, which is dealing with sexual violence uh, in our community as well. So, uh, Jen, please stand. And just so you know, she's way nicer than I am. <laughs> way nicer. Okay. Seeing that uh, there's nobody else at the mic, I want to say thank you. Uh, this is an issue that's near and dear to my heart, and we certainly had some nice discussion uh, at the table. So I want to thank you, and I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas, okay. and good luck in your new endeavors. Thank you very which much. Which isn't retirement. No. <laughs> it's not. Thank, thank you very, very much. much. We are taking donations for the YW Harbor House, CA. Uh, SACPA is also donating the uh, profits of today's luncheon today. Uh, so uh, feel free to be generous. <laughs> and have a Merry Christmas. <laughs>